Welcome to the Bethel Church Podcast. Each week you'll be able to check in for our messages from Sunday and other material. We hope that our messages encourage you in your walk and daily faith with Jesus. Make sure to check out our website, BethelStratford.org. I get the privilege and the honor to introduce our speaker to you this morning. Some of you will recognize the name um, just because of who he is, and some will recognize his name because he grew up here. And so Darren Latham is with us this morning. And so Darren grew up in Stratford. He attended Bethel as a teenager, went to youth here, and then he went on to Bible college. And since then, he has pastored in Toronto and Cambridge and Chilliwack, St. Catharines. And now for the last 10 years, he's been at Broadway in Vancouver. And Darren is just an incredible leader, an incredible communicator, and just above all, just an incredible man of God. And so we're honored to have him here with us this morning. And so not only is he a great man of God, but he is one of Stratford's. So can we just give him a warm welcome as he comes to share with you this morning? Very kind of you. Thank you. God bless you, man. Well, thank you, Chad. Bless you. Let me ask you a simple question this morning. Where do you get your identity? How do you define yourself at your very core? For 17 years, I've lived in British Columbia. 17 years of my life was in BC. Um, and so, but when people ask me, so where are you from? I always say, I'm from Stratford. Though I've lived there for a couple decades, but in my heart of hearts, I'm from Stratford. And by the way, so thank you, Chad, and for your leadership for allowing me to speak here today. It really is an honor to be here. I remember the roof, don't remember anything else in this room. But uh, it's always great to come home again uh, to, to Stratford and to Bethel. But I'm really torn between two regions, two worlds. Am I a BC boy? Am I an Ontario guy? I'm really not sure. It all depends on the day. And it doesn't help that there's a huge competition between well, Vancouver and Toronto. You probably don't realize because you're in the center of the universe here. But <laughs> out in Vancouver, people hate Toronto. Being a Leafs fan in the heart of Vancouver, pray for me. It's difficult. <laughs> And you see this competition all the time, and it tears at me. Who am I? For example, in, in Toronto, I was reading a while ago, they were doing some construction, and they were digging down a couple hundred feet, and they found a bunch of ancient copper. And so the Torontonians said, well, this is proof that Toronto had the first copper network system for, for internet. And well, Vancouver, not to be outdone, we dug down a couple hundred feet in downtown Vancouver and we found shards of glass. And so we said, there, our ancestors had the first fiber optic network in the world. <laughs> By the way, not to be outdone, the Newfies in St. John's, they were digging down a couple hundred feet, 200 feet, 300 feet, 400 feet, found absolutely nothing. And they said, that's proof the Newfies had the first wireless network in the world. <laughs> So I tell you all that to say, it's a real challenge. I'm torn in the competition. Who am I? How do I define myself? Where do you get your sense of identity today? It's got to be more than geography. You've got to be more than where you're from, as much as that helps to, to define you to a degree. It's got to be deeper than geography. We're going to spend the next two or three hours, just kidding, just seeing if you're paying attention. <laughs> We're going to spend the next 20, 25 minutes 
looking into this whole issue of identity. Who am I? Who are you at your very core? And I might take it as I begin in a bit of a strange direction. While all abuse is terrible, there is something particularly insidious about the sexual abuse of children. The damage that's done to a young life is particularly lethal because it damages that life at its very core. And the story of one survivor of sexual childhood abuse really illustrates this reality. She shared with me years ago, she was about eight years old when a very close family member interacted with her in a highly inappropriate way. It was devastating to hear how this woman described what took place within her young mind at that moment. She said, Darren, when he did that to me, I immediately thought to myself, well, he's family. He knows me. He's supposed to love me. So if he thinks I'm that kind of a girl, I must be that kind of a girl. And that embedded lie set off a pattern that went on to devastate her life for the next 40 years. There's an old saying, as the twig bends, so grows the tree. As the twig bends, so grows the tree. From that moment on, she behaved the way she behaved because she thought the way she thought. Her identity shaped her behavior. So I ask you again, what belief is at the root of your behavior? What sits at the core, at the source of your identity this morning? Now, not everyone has been traumatized like that little girl, but everyone does have a defining story. Everyone is believing something about themselves at their core. And that belief, that core identity, shapes your behavior. So I come at it again. What lies at the heart of your life? What's the story at your core? What is the defining theme of your life? Where do you get your identity? Now, many of us find our identity in what we do for a living. If you're here and you're a successful realtor and the market suddenly shifts, do you suddenly go from being a somebody to a nobody? When the market tanks, will you go from being an incredible woman to a very failure of a woman? Does that even make sense? Your identity shouldn't uh, hinge on the volatility of a housing market, right? But when we get our identity by what we do, whatever our job or profession, we place ourselves in a similar scenario. When we try to gain our identity by what we do, we're only as good as what we can produce. And that's a recipe for life on a roller coaster. I mean, think about it. Is your life more valuable if you're the boss than if you're an employee? Is your life more valuable if you're the president as opposed to the vice president? Speaking of the president, did you hear? It's just, I just heard it on the news this morning that uh, they're telling the story of President Donald Trump when he was over in Singapore recently. Um, some protester tried to throw a rock at him. And, uh, and so one of his Secret Service agents yelled out, Mickey Mouse! Mickey Mouse! And it startled the protester, startled everyone, to the point the protester hesitated, they tackled him and so on. Well, later, President Donald Trump said to his Secret Service guy, why did you yell Mickey Mouse? And the Secret Service guy said, I was so nervous, I meant to yell Donald 
duck. <laughs> True story. So, again, so do you have to be the president to have value? When we get our identity by what we do, we're only as good as what we can produce, and that is life on a roller coaster. Some people falsely gain their identity by what they do. Other people, we get our identity, they get their identity, some people get their identity from their appearance. There are beautiful people out there who fear aging. Men and women who are afraid to turn 30, or even admit that they turn 30. I mean, the, the book of Proverbs in the Bible says that beauty is fleeting because it is fleeting. Beauty cannot last. So when we try to gain our identity by how we look, we're only as good as we appear. And the sad truth is that gravity always wins. <laughs> we're fighting a losing battle, folks. Listen, when I was under this roof years ago, I had luscious flowing hair. <laughs> You're not supposed to laugh at that. <laughs> Gravity wins. Gravity came along, pulled my hair out by its roots, and blew it in the wind. <laughs> Folks, when we try to gain our identity by how we look, it, it never, it'll never work. Children and family is another place that we can be tempted to make as our primary identity. But dangerous things happen when you make your family your core identity. When we try to gain our identity from our family, we're only as good as they appear. And that turns something beautiful into something toxic. Because you're wanting your children to perform so you look good. Well, that's the recipe for disaster. And how's that working for you, in the words of Dr. <laughs> Phil? So, where we're from, what we do, how we look, who we're related to, all faulty sources of identity. So you say, Darren, so what should be at our core? Where should we get our identity? As you can see, this issue of identity, it's really an important thing for us to figure out. It's one of life's big questions. And using scripture, using the Bible as our guide for the next few moments, we're going to do our best to unpack the answer. If you have a Bible with you, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't, don't sweat it. We're going to have some passages up on the screen uh, beside us in a few moments, not right yet. Ephesians chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me say this to some people in this room right now. The next 20 minutes are going to be life-changing for some of us. I'm sure there are people within the sound of my voice right now who will leave this building a different person, radically different from who you were when you entered this building. Not because of the power of my preaching, but because of the power of God's Spirit. If you're here and you are sincerely searching for truth, for life, for meaning. I encourage you to listen very carefully because I believe that God himself has something powerful to say to you. Pay very close attention to what's going on inside of you for the next few moments. Before you leave this room today, you're going to be given an opportunity to respond to what God is saying to you. Okay, are you at Ephesians chapter 1 yet? Before we look at our passage from Ephesians, let's kind of get a sense of what Ephesians is all about. What is this book? It's a letter in the New Testament. What is it all about? Now, Ephesus, Ephesians is from Ephesus. Ephesus was an ancient city in, located in modern-day Turkey. If you strolled through the city, the ancient city of Ephesus, in the first century, you would be amazed at what you'd see. It was a first-class city. 
There was a giant mall, two football fields side by side in size, filled with shops of every kind. You could buy anything in Ephesus, and I mean anything. Over here was the Temple of Artemis, which was about the size of another football field, surrounded by 127 60-foot-tall marble pillars. It was one of the seven wonders of the world when it was built. It was the largest building in the world at its time. Ephesus had a theater. You think the festival theater is great and wonderful? Listen, that's nothing. When I say theater, I'm not talking about some little cineplex in Ephesus. The theater in Ephesus sat 25,000 people. Like I said, Ephesus was a world-class city. It was a first-century Hong Kong, Tokyo, or New York, or Vancouver. But despite the amazing architecture in Ephesus, everything there was not good and beautiful. There were pickpockets, scam artists, prostitutes, murderers, people with bad hair-trigger tempers, binge drinkers. All the vices that come with, with urban setting in a broken world were present in that city. And that's why a guy named Paul arrived there in about the year 53. And he began sharing the good news of the difference Jesus Christ could make to their lives. Now Paul was there in Ephesus for about two years. He started a church. And then he left. He left people with new hearts, but they still had old habits like you and like me. So it was no surprise then when Paul departed, some people began drifting back into their old habits and lifestyles. So, only a few years after Paul left Ephesus, he wrote them a letter. And the letter served as sort of a refresher course in what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And that letter, that refresher course, is the letter you and I have in our Bibles today called Ephesians. Now, if you were Paul, what would you have written? If you had been given the task of addressing people who were wandering back into old destructive patterns, how would you have handled it? How Paul handled it is actually quite fascinating. And it reveals something to us about the power of identity. The letter Paul wrote in the, to the Ephesians is divided into two very distinct sections. The first three chapters have a certain feel to them. With the last three chapters have a, having a completely different feel. In the second half of the letter, chapters 4 to 6, Paul addresses some of the behaviors that were going on. The wrong behaviors. And he says, don't do this, don't do this, stop doing that. That's the last three chapters. But the first three chapters are completely different. Well, how does Paul begin the letter? I'll get to that in a minute. A couple months ago, my wife and I had the privilege of taking about 70 people from Broadway Church to Israel and Jordan, leading a tour, two big buses throughout the country, throughout those two countries. And... Um, we had some guides, some Israeli guides that were there. And of course, they used these things where uh, our guide had a sort of a headset, and we all had headsets, and we could listen to him as we were following along. So he didn't have to yell. He could just speak into his microphone, and we could hear if we were yards away, several yards away, we could still hear. Now, we had an arrangement in the bus that I was leading um, where... Our guide would lead, and then the 40 people or so in my bus would follow the guide. And I told our guide, listen, I'll be at the very end, because we had some folks who had some trouble walking a bit. And so I said, listen, I don't want to lose anybody, because they all paid money to Broadway. I want to keep them. And so I said, listen, I'll be at the very end, and when you see me wave my hand, you know I'm with the last person, and you can keep going. He said, okay, great. Here's what I noticed. I had some real stragglers, people who like to stay behind and take pictures, and I'm thinking, come on. Move along here. You know, I'm grabbing elderly ladies by the arm and saying, I don't care. Come with me. <laughs> and so 
But I learned that if our guide went a certain distance, I would lose contact. He'd be talking, I could hear him talking, then his voice would crackle, and then be completely gone. Now that's fine when I'm at some site, you know, up in the northern Galilee where I can see him, but when I'm walking through the streets of Jerusalem, and the, you know, the Arab quarter where it's left, right, left, and you're in the middle of chaos, I don't know, did he turn left, right? I don't know where he is. There's a few times that I would completely detach from our guide. You say, Darren, why are you telling us about this? Well, apparently Paul recognized that something similar was happening to the Ephesians. They too were losing contact with their guide. And it was affecting their behavior. They were behaving the way they behaved because they were thinking the way they were thinking. And they thought the way they thought because they had lost touch with their true identity. So Paul began his letter by bringing them back. He began his letter by reminding them of their true identity. But he did it in a way that would be lost on us 21st century readers. Paul showed them their true identity by using some imagery, by using a metaphor that would have struck a deep chord with the first century Ephesians. A few moments ago, we learned that our identity shapes our behavior. And then we went on to learn some unhealthy sources of a person's identity. Our, our hometown, our job, our appearance, our family. Well, in the first few verses of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we're about to discover the biblical source of a healthy identity. Let's put it up on the side screens. We're going to be reading from the message translation, okay? Let's read it together. Paul says, I, Paul, am under God's plan as an apostle. That means a leader in the church. A special agent of Christ Jesus, writing to you faithful believers in Ephesus. I greet you with the grace and peace poured into our lives by God our Father and our Master Jesus Christ. How blessed is God, and what a blessing he is. He's the Father of our Master Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Next slide, please. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind. Think about that. And it settled on us as the focus of his love. To be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What a pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift given by the hand of his beloved son. Are you seeing it? It's right there. Right in this passage is your identity. What should be at the core of your identity? According to Paul, this is your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ. This is who you are. This is all that you need to remember. This is the truth that should lie at ground zero of your life. Here it is. I have been adopted by God. That's it. I have been adopted by God. That is the heart of your biblical identity. I mean, repeat it to yourself over and over again. Memorize it. I have been adopted by God. Everything else in your life should ex exist in the shadow of this one fact. I have been adopted by God. I'm God's adopted child. God settled upon me as the focus of his love. This is something God wanted to do. This is something God decided to do. This is something God did. This isn't something I did. This is something God did. What is your core? What is your primary identity? You have been adopted 
by God. Now, be honest with me. Are you a little surprised at this? Maybe a little underwhelmed even. Darren, that's it? You came all the way across the country to say that? Seriously? Were you expecting something more involved? Something more profound, perhaps? I doubt that we receive this information the same way, with the same intensity as Paul's first century readers. Our problem is, and there's nothing we can really do about this initially, our problem is we read the scripture through 21st century eyes rather than through first century lenses. Let's try to experience this passage as the people in Ephesus would have experienced it. In order to do that, let's imagine ourselves sitting in that 25,000 seat amphitheater in Ephesus. We've just walked into the theater and the Greek play Oedipus Rex is about to begin. All the Ephesians sitting around us in the theater know this story off by heart. It was a well-known popular drama back then. The king and queen of Thebes have been warned by an oracle, by a prophet, that when they have a son, that son will cause their family grave damage. So when a son is eventually born to them, the king takes his newborn son and he abandons the baby in a field. The child is then found by a shepherd boy and as the story unfolds, tragedy lies around every corner. Now it's important to note that this part of the story, the part about the king abandoning the baby boy, would not shock the Ephesian viewers at all. Child abandonment was very common in Roman culture. In Roman culture, when a baby was born, it was set at its father's feet. The father either picked up the baby or the father turned around and walked away. Maybe he wanted a boy and had a girl. Maybe he wanted a girl and had a boy. Maybe he detected some defect. It was the father's decision at birth whether to accept or reject the child. Rarely in Roman culture would the baby be outright killed though. Instead, the child would be exposed to the elements for the, the gods to decide its fate. In fact, outside the eastern gate of ancient Ephesus, there was a garbage dump where people would bring babies that they didn't want. Frequently, a child would be taken to the marketplace and just abandoned in the marketplace. Often, someone would come along, take the child, and raise the child to be a slave or a prostitute. I read a few weeks ago that there was a physician in that region who wrote a manual on how to measure the dimensions of a child in order to increase the odds of picking a child that would make a strong slave when it grew up. It was to this culture that Paul was writing when he talked about adoption. When Paul writes to the churches in and around Ephesus and he says that God in his love has adopted them, he was writing to an abandonment culture. He's writing to a culture where babies were routinely tossed aside. And it's to these people that Paul writes and says, if you have come to know Jesus, your most defining moment isn't who threw you out, it's who took you in. If you have come to know Jesus, your defining moment isn't who rejected you, it's who selected you. If you've come to know Jesus, you are defined by who picked you out, who picked you up, and who took you home. Ephesians, he's saying, you were abandoned on a street corner. You were dropped off in a dumpster. But know this, God himself has adopted you and made you his child. 
That is the truth that should define your life. That is the reality that should lie at the core of your identity. So what story is presently sitting at the core of your life? What story should be sitting at the core of your life as a follower of Jesus? It's simple. I have been adopted by God. I am unconditionally loved by God. It makes no difference what others have done to me or what I have done to others in the past. None of that touches at the core of my identity. My core identity is summed up in one phrase. I have been adopted by God. Now every week at Broadway, I summarize my teaching with one simple sentence. We call it our big idea. One pithy Tweetable idea that you can take home with you. Here's today's idea. When you walk out of Bethel and someone says, oh, what did Latham talk about? Here it is. In one sentence, here's what you can take home. My identity is rooted in God's activity. My identity is rooted in God's activity. Not your activity. Not my activity. I'm not defined by what I do or what others have done to me. My identity is rooted in God's activity. Your identity is not rooted in what other people have said about you, what other people have done to you, labels that other people have put upon you or that you've tried to put upon yourself. No, your identity is rooted in God's activity. I'm almost done. Let, let me tell you a story from my own life. Um, I, often if I, when I'm praying and journaling and so on, what I do is I, I kind of try to use vision a bit. We understand as followers of Jesus that we're not, this isn't some religion, stale religion where we're following a bunch of rules. This is a dynamic relationship with God. And so when I pray, I, I don't, don't just talk like many of you. I seek to listen as well. And one thing that I often do is I'll sit down and I'll kind of close my eyes. And I often picture myself sitting across from Jesus. I never see his face. But I, I'm aware that he's sitting across from me in my imagination. And I'll journal. I'll write down a conversation I feel like I'm having. Years ago, I don't remember what was going on. This was like 20, 25 years ago. I was having a conversation. And I was journaling what I was feeling God saying to me. And as I'm sitting there, I was under some type of stress. I don't remember what it was. Feeling worthless. And as, as I was sitting there, I felt Jesus say, Darren, what is that? And he pointed on the ground where we were sitting. And it was a rock. And I said, it's a rock. And he said, that's right. He said, how valuable is that rock? I said, it's not valuable at all. It's just a rock. Been sitting there for thousands, millions of years, depending on your perspective. I said, it's useless. It's probably been worthless. It's been trampled on by people for centuries. It's a valueless, worthless rock. He said, that's right. And then, as I was picturing this, Jesus reached down and he picked it up. He said, now how valuable is this rock? I said, it's priceless. If I had a rock that was validated as being held in the hands of Jesus, you wouldn't, all the money in the world could not purchase that rock. He said, Darren, that's right. He said, you're that rock. You were worthless in your own mind, maybe even in the minds of others. You were trampled on, ignored, walked over, but I've picked you up. And because I hold you in my hand, you get your value not on what you've done and what others have done to you, but simply because of what I have done in your life. I am no different than you. You have been adopted by God. Your identity is rooted in God's activity. 
I was reminded that day that it's God's presence in a life that sets it apart. My identity is rooted in God's activity. I was being reminded that day that it's God's activity that sets a life apart and gives it its value. My identity is rooted in God's activity. Maybe you're here, and like the Ephesians, you're a follower of Jesus, but you're finding yourself slipping into old patterns. The joy and the clarity of your walk with Jesus has faded somehow. The Spirit of God calls out to you today, remember who you are. You were once living in a gutter, but he came along, he found you, he chose you, he picked you up, he took you into his arms, he lavished his love upon you to heal you, to help you, to restore your soul. You are adopted by God. That's your story. That's your identity. That is who you are. So live in the light and the power of that truth. Maybe you're here and you're searching. You're searching for an anchor in your life. So much has happened to you and through you in life. Some of it brings great pride. Some of it brings great shame. It depends on really where you focus at any given moment of your day. It depends on what you choose to remember at any given moment. The truth is you don't know what to believe about yourself. You don't know which part of you is the real part of you. You don't know which story is your story. The Spirit of God wants to bring clarity to your soul today. The Spirit of God wants to speak peace into your heart today. And he wants to bring eternal life into your existence right now. He wants to change the source of your identity. And you can walk out of this room with a new truth at the core of your being. Your identity won't be rooted in what you've done or what others have done to you. Your identity won't be rooted in your activity or the activity of others. Your identity will be rooted in God's activity. Your identity will be rooted in one simple, life-changing truth. You have been adopted by God. He's chosen you. He's called you his own. And he wants to lavish his love upon you. The question is this. Will you let him? Will you say yes to God's overwhelming love? Let's bow our heads together, please. As we conclude, with no one moving around in this last moment, except for the band, if they'd like to come, perhaps you're here, and you're already a follower of Jesus, but you've been struggling with your identity. You don't know who you are. Maybe you've been looking to your own deeds, you've been looking to your own appearance, you've been looking to your geography been looking to your family identity, your DNA, whatever it would be, your name. None of those things are the source of your identity that God's designed for you. He loves you unconditionally. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been adopted by him. That's your core. Let that settle at the core of your heart and life right now. God, I am adopted by you. You chose me. You selected me. You picked me up and set me apart. I am your child. Just rest in that truth right now. Maybe you're here in this last moment and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. I'm not pointing you out in this moment. I'm not going to require you to stand at this moment. But you're here and you say, Darren, I'd like to accept this gift of eternal life and forgiveness that I've heard about today. 
with every head bowed and every eye closed in this moment, I'm going to pray a prayer. If you'd like to become a follower of Jesus, you say, how do I do that? It's simple. God has no grandchildren. It doesn't matter what your parents or grandparents did. You, you can't be grafted in in that sense. This is a decision you need to make. It's, it's a gift. You receive a gift by extending your hands to accept it. Well, in this next one minute, you're going to extend your heart to accept this gift. Jesus Christ came, lived, died, and rose from the dead to purchase eternal life and forgiveness for you and for me. And right now, he's extending his hands to you saying, I love you. I know everything about you. And I love you. And it's no accident that you're here, he says. And so right now, with every head bowed, just agree with me. I'm going to pray. Agree with me in your heart as I pray this prayer. Like I'm praying on your behalf. Father God, I don't understand everything. I don't claim to have it all figured out. But I choose to believe right now that you came, you lived, you died, you rose from the dead. I choose to believe that you're not a liar, that you're telling the truth about what you can do and about what you offer and about your love for me. So I turn my back on my old way of living. I don't want to live that way anymore. And I accept your gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Change me. Cleanse me from the inside out. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this week's message. Bethel Church Podcast. We hope that it's blessed you and encouraged you. And that you come back and check out next week's message as well. 